everyone, and welcome. I'm Miriam Knight, the publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital multimedia magazine and website where we review the top books and films having an impact on the global awakening. Our website is ncreview.com. On this show, we explore the many and varied faces of conscious awakening and what that can mean in your life. So today's guest is Julia Shopik. She is a patient advocate, health writer, and creator of the award-winning blog, Honest Medicine. Her columns and articles have appeared widely in the national press. Her mission is to inform people about little-known but promising treatments and to empower them in making healthcare choices. She is the author of the Amazon best-selling book, Honest Medicine, Effective, Time-Tested, Inexpensive Treatments for Life-Threatening Diseases. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much, Miriam. That book title is a mouthful, isn't it? Isn't it, it though? Yes, taglines are wonderful, but you forget that people actually need to read them. Right. (laughs) Anyway, today, dear listener, we are going to talk about learning to listen to your gut when your doctor's advice isn't helping, and also why it's so important to be an empowered patient, and why doctors sometimes don't like empowered patients. So anyway, Julia, um, how are you going to kick us off on this discussion? Well, there are any number of, of, uh, of avenues we can take. Why don't I start uh, by talking about the fact that how I listened, how I learned to listen to my gut. How would that sound? That sounds great. Okay, because I want to tell you that originally I was not somebody who listened to her gut as far as health care decisions. As a matter of fact, I was terrified of having any interaction with the medical profession um, because my dad was a doctor who basically he told me he did not like what was going on in medicine and therefore I should keep away from doctors as much as I could. You know? <laughs> so I did. Oh, and I know it's funny, isn't it, to think of it, but he really, really meant that. I mean, his, his most famous quote, made famous by me, of course, is, if a doctor tells you he knows all the answers, run like hell. So <laughs> you can tell he really did teach me, you know, to stay away. But in 1990, my husband, he was only 40 years old. It was only five years after we'd gotten married, actually. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and it was the size of an orange. And that's huge. Doctors like to compare uh, tumors to the size of fruit, as you probably know. Um, and uh, I have to tell you, I did not decide to start researching the way I'm telling. I'm going to be telling your listeners to do. I was not that kind of empowered patient that we're going to be talking about. I was terrified, and my husband was terrified, and we actually stood in lockstep and did exactly what the doctors uh, advised, nothing more, nothing less. And so he had the surgery, and that was a call for because the tumor was huge. Then he had radiation, then he had chemotherapy. I'm not sure still, Miriam, whether the chemotherapy was, was the right decision, but in any case, the point I'm making is that we really didn't step out of the box the way I'm going to be telling your listeners that they really should. We didn't. And I began to notice that 
he was beginning, he was only given three years to live. The doctor said it's a serious brain tumor. He, you know, he probably has 18 months to three years. And, of course, that frightened us even more, right? Yeah. But in any case, um, he, he did outlive his uh, prognosis. And I began to notice that he was developing every single side effect, every complication that I was reading about online. He got what's called hydrocephalus, water on the brain, which required, uh, which required uh, numerous surgeries going in to put a shunt in, then the shunt malfunctioned. I won't go into details. They're in the book, but, you know, not in terribly detailed fashion, but they're all there in, in my book, Honest Medicine. He even had a radiation-caused stroke. And finally, I said, got to start doing something. And I started researching. I started, my gut started waking up. And I started doing some research, and I found a, a nutritionist who really knew a lot about cancer and brain tumors especially. And he started to flourish. And what I noticed was that the doctors, he, he was doing much, much better. And the doctors could not have been less interested in what we were doing. And that didn't bother me, frankly, because in a selfish way, I was just pleased that my husband was outliving his prognosis and feeling good. But then in 2000, 2001, he had a recurrence of the tumor. And at that point, his skin would not heal. Uh, he had had too many times when they had gone in for, quote, minor procedures like the hydrocephalus, and his skin just wouldn't heal. And they kept bringing him back into the operating room and doing more and more surgeries till he ended up having eight surgeries, additional surgeries. And one of the last one was, was also taking grafts from all, all over his body. And I was frantic. And I was researching. I was following my gut, but nothing was working, you know, because the doctors wouldn't, uh, wouldn't read any of the research I had found. And then... A holistic doctor, an integrative doctor friend, found a product that is the first product I write about in my book, in, in Honest Medicine. It's called Silverlon, S-I-L-V-E-R-L-O-N. And it's pieces of material with silver ions. And as the doctor who told me about it said, it's FDA approved for all non-healing wounds. Long story short, I got permission. The story is quite dramatic as to how I got permission, but um, I'll leave that to your listeners to read about it. But in any case, we put it on his head. His skin started healing, and I was sure his doctors would be excited as I was. I mean, here, you know, my husband, because of all the, all the treatments, the, all the extra surgeries, was now in pretty bad shape, but he was alive. And I was wondering why the doctors weren't coming over and telling me how great it was that he was alive. And one doctor came up to me and he said, you know, we don't think it was what you found with the accent on you that worked to heal your husband's skin. And I said, well, what do you think it is? And he said, we think it was vancomycin. And that's the IV antibiotic that my husband had been on for at least six weeks. And I said, but he's been on vancomycin. He's had the IV for at least six weeks. And the doctor said the words that turned me into a patient advocate, they were, vancomycin is like that. It kicks in. And I vowed that something was really wrong with the medical system and that following one's own gut was something that I had to be there and help other people to do because doctors were, were just, they, they were not used to, to being partners with patients. And I knew that that was necessary. I had found through a fellow, through a doctor, not a fellow doctor, I'm not a doctor, but I had found something that worked. 
and the doctors were not interested in partnering with me, and that's what my mission is all about. That's a pretty tall uh, order for yourself. Actually, you're, you're talking about changing the medical mindset. It's hard. I, you know, I, Miriam, you bring up a, a wonderful point. I'm not sure it's possible to change the medical mindset. All I can do is to use, I didn't tell you this, but I was a college teacher um, before I did public relations, and uh, so I'm trying to use my combination of PR and teaching skills, education, to help patients to perhaps influence their doctors. So that, that's what I'm about. Well, let's go back to when you and your husband first faced this diagnosis. Um, it, it's a very overwhelming thing when a doctor tells you that you have a life-threatening illness and you have a, an expiring date, expiration date. And you're grasping at straws. And because doctors are trained to, be, to at least project a sense of confidence, um, that's, you're going to grasp at that sense of confidence that you, you get from him and you'll do anything he says. So how do you think that people in that situation um, can actually get the courage to say, okay, let's look at this a little more closely? It's, it's hard. I think, and, and I grapple with it, and my friends grapple with it. All of us, by the way, are very assertive kinds of people. I think that you just have to look at it and say, you know, the doctor does not know everything. And what I ask people to do is to also remember the way doctors are not educated. They're trained. One, one of the chapters in, in Honest Medicine in my book is uh, contributed by Dr. Bert Berkson, where he talks about how doctors really are trained and they're not educated. And education means, you know, training is when you're told to follow orders, you know. Just do exactly what your teachers told you, do exactly what's in the medical books, you know, all of that. Education is questioning. And just realize, you know, in, in, in my book, Dr. Gluck says, be compassionate toward doctors. I don't know if I have mastered that, if you want to know the truth, Miriam. But... He points out that they do have a deficit, you know, that, that both Dr. Gluck and Dr. Berkson, that doctors are really, they're not perfect at all, and they have a deficit. They're not, they're not educated correctly, and they also get a lot of their education or training from pharmaceutical reps. So keep all this in mind, and it will give you more courage, is what I'm trying to say. And I think there's another aspect, Julia, which is that there is a standard that the AMA sets out for being the standard of care. And it, anyone, and there are a lot of more forward-thinking doctors who have strayed from that standard of care. And it doesn't matter if your patients get better as a result. You can still be pilloried by the medical establishment if you step outside that box. Yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, a very, very, very important point. Um, there is one state, I don't think I'll say which one it is, but, uh, because I don't want to, I don't want people coming after me about it, but there's one state that's 
particularly hard this way. And as a matter of fact, there is a doctor in that state, Dr. Stanislaus Brzezinski, and um, he has developed a cancer treatment called antineoplastins that has been very successful, you know, for a lot of cancer patients. And he has literally been pilloried, not only by his fellow doctors, we think they probably did, quote, turn him in, but the medical, uh, the, the medical board keeps bringing him up before the board. It's terrifying. So we well, it's interesting. I happen, I happen to know that case very well. And the length that he has had to go to to protect himself in terms of getting um, uh, uh, all of the uh, regulations, you know, staying inside the line of the regulations, getting the permission to do clinical trials and so forth, and um, many, many different ways of protecting himself. And even so, when he went to um, get uh, uh, clinical trials, he found that the head of the FDA had subverted one of his colleagues, and they had put a patent in on his technique uh, after they couldn't convince him to, to sell it to them. It's yeah, they want the the consensus seems to be that everybody is everybody that that the powers that be seem to be upset with him, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn because he will not play ball, and you know he will he will not sell his uh, his uh, his uh, invention his patents to a pharmaceutical company. Now a lot of people, a lot of doctors who come up with these inventions, know that if they were to be sold to a pharmaceutical company, they would be. Uh, essentially shelved so that they wouldn't compete with existing drugs because a lot of these um, interventions, particularly the ones that you have in your book, are low-cost interventions. They're more effective, they're much cheaper, and they would directly impinge on the profits of the pharmaceutical company. You're if absolutely there is a bad right. Player, so they will purchase, they will license, I guess is the word, the invention. They'll, they'll purchase the patents or license it. And then, as you said, they'll shelve them because they're not, what they're really saying is, hey, you know, you have uh, my page, I have a drug for multiple sclerosis. I'm, I'm pretending I'm the uh, pharmaceutical company person talking now. We have drugs for MS, multiple sclerosis. We have drugs for Crohn's. We have drugs for fibromyalgia. We have drugs for uh, chronic fatigue. And here is this little whippersnapper, small, you know, inexpensive uh, treatment called low-dose naltrexone, one of the treatments that I profile in, in my book in Honest Medicine. And this is supposed to be a good treatment for all of those and more. Oh, no, we don't want that. We want a one, we want a one, one, one disease or even one symptom, one drug model. So you're absolutely right. The company would buy it and shelve it. So... This is this is scary. Now, on low-dose naltrexone, tell us the difference in price between um, a, a month on that versus a month on the pharmaceutical. Oh, my God. Okay, recently, I love this question. It, it, uh, it, it's so bizarre because the answer to it is bizarre, not your question, 
But um, there was recently an article, you know, I'm pretty big on Facebook, so whenever I see an article that speaks to me, you know, and I know it will speak to my followers, I post it. There was recently, it was, I believe it was an article in New England Journal. I'm not positive. I can look it up, though. New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, I believe so, which said that the cheapest MS, multiple sclerosis drug, was $50,000 a year. And, um, you know, so the MS patients who were also followers of low-dose naltrexone, they shared it all over. You know, I posted it. And because guess how much low-dose naltrexone costs? I mean, it's, it's really pennies. You know, um, one of the compounding pharmacies that I know, Skip Lenz, uh, and he's one of the biggest proponents of low-dose naltrexone, I think he charges like $20 a month or something like that. So I have the I have the compilations in my book in, in where I say you know it, that these drugs I, I specifically talked about the MS drugs the multiple sclerosis drugs and I believe it was thousands of times more expensive than low dose naltrexone so this is a problem for the, the pharmaceutical companies don't like it and this is also true of the other treatments in my book you know that are much less expensive than the standard I mean intravenous alpha lipoic acid has kept a lot of people people from needing, needing liver transplants. I didn't do my due diligence and find out how much a liver transplant costs, but you just can imagine that the hospitals would, would hate to have some of their business go, you know, and the doctors. And the ketogenic diet, another one of the treatments that I, that I write about, I mean, that's just food, you know. All the, uh, the child has to do is be in the hospital for a week or so till they get the diet, which is a high-fat, low-carbohydrate, low-protein diet, till they get it regulated correctly, and then it's just food from then, from then on. And that was for childhood epilepsy, was it? Yeah, yeah. Excuse me for not saying that, for childhood epilepsy. And um, so these are very, very inexpensive treatments. And one of the reasons I'm out there... Miriam, is that, you know, there is a book called The Bitter Pill by Stephen Brill where he basically says that we are going to go broke, uh, something that, of course, is no big surprise, you know, because with the health care bill, there were no price dampening uh, uh, things built in. You know, the pharmaceutical companies can, can charge whatever they want, and so can big industry, and, you know, the MRIs, the CT scans, and we're going to go broke. And here, my book and other books like it have answers that could save health care. And I'm not an economist, and I'm not, you know, a policy wonk, but doesn't it make sense that they should try to listen to some of these, to, to use some of these treatments and others like them? Well, you know, in the Hippocratic Oath, it says, first, do no harm. Oh, well, that's a long time ago, huh? Uh, we, they have strayed from the roots, yes. <laughs> it's interesting that in China, doctors are paid um, a retainer to keep families healthy, and if anyone gets sick, they stop getting paid. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I, I've heard about that, and you know what? After we get off, uh, off the, you know, after we stop our interview, I'm going to look for an article to post on Facebook which speaks to that very thing because you're absolutely right. Say, isn't that a wonderful model that we should be using? Absolutely. And I and I've known about it, but you know, the first do no harm. You know, doctors must, and I, I hate to be. Uh, just, you know, going off on a tangent here, but they must lose something 
when they, you know, they give, let's, I take MS, multiple sclerosis, as, a, as an example, because the drugs are so dangerous. Well, let's take autoimmune diseases. Julia, what website can people go to to find out or to connect? You know what? It's going to be a big surprise. It's honestmedicine.com. <laughs> And my my uh, email is Julia at honestmedicine.com, and the book is Honest Medicine. I should trademark that, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I just hope people don't think it's an oxymoron. Uh, well, that, did I, I? I don't know if you uh, watched the video, which which is on my website of me talking to the Cancer Control Society. But I tell the story in the in that video of how I was on Dr. Ron Hoffman's show, the first show I ever did, you know, after the book was published, mm -hmm. and he started right out by asking that question. <laughs> he said, "Honest medicine? Does that mean that you think that a lot of medicine is dishonest?" You know. So he was right there asking about the oxymoronic uh, trait to, to my title. Now, I don't want people to think that we are just getting down on doctors. Uh, no. We're really looking at this holistically, at the system of education of doctors, at the system of regulation of doctors, at the system of uh, paying uh, doctors for their skills. And <clears throat> too often the... Um, the, the, the route to um, making a living is pushing drugs rather than really practicing medicine. When I lived in the UK, I actually ran a, a temp agency for medical personnel. And uh, it was de very difficult to get GPs because a lot of them were either um, committing suicide, uh, becoming drug addicts, or, or leaving, leaving practice. It's a terribly difficult uh, job, and I have nothing but admiration for people who are truly motivated to serve humanity by going into medicine. And what we are calling for here is a change in mindset, a change in uh, attitude, an opening of the mind to other kinder, gentler, cheaper ways of making people um, help, uh, well. So, Julia. Um, and, may I first say I, I, that I'm very glad you said that because sometimes when, when I start talking about it, I just get so frustrated that I hope I'm not sounding like I'm trying to bash all doctors because you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, several of the heroes of my book are doctors who, who were curious and stepped outside the box. But I am trying to work on, on changing a bit of a mindset here. You're right. <laughs> okay. Now, if we're talking about empowering patients, how is someone to be able to distinguish um, a promising treatment from one that's not promising because unfortunately on the other side of the, uh, of the divide between doctors and the pharmaceutical companies are uh, alternative medicines but there's also a lot of quackery out there and, it's re and, and unfortunately people do like to prey on people who are in distress and who are desperate you know so you know they might grasp at any straw how do you tell um, the, the good stuff from the bad? 
Thanks for asking that question. And the answer, one day when I figure it out exactly to the T, I can, I can give some, some direction though, but I will conduct teleseminars or webinars to teach people literally how to find, you know, the good treatments. But the answer, to, I can give a broad answer to your question. And that is be very, very careful when you go online. First of all, there are a, there's the subtitle of a lot of the contributors of my book of honest medicine was thank god for the internet because they found wonderful treatments on the internet but the truth is what you said as well that out there there's a lot of i hate to use the words but snake oil and i can tell you a few ways to tell one is if there don't laugh but if there are flashing lights proclaiming that this is a cure you know for all diseases or for all cancers or something like that, you know, and you can just tell, just use your, your common sense if, if there's, there are words like that. The other thing, and I'm afraid that a lot of people are not going to have the skills to do this because we're becoming so, um, how can I say it, people are, are not reading as much anymore. But uh, you can often tell because these, these websites that I was talking about, you know, with the flashing lights and, and saying it's a miracle cure, often it's just badly written, bad grammar, bad spelling. And those are certain ways that you can tell. Um, look to see, though. I've coined a new expression in my book. I don't think a, um, a treatment has to be, you know, with, with all the huge clinical trials behind it. Because as you pointed out, Miriam, these treatments that I write about and that others write about that are good treatments don't, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, pay any pharmaceutical company to do the huge clinical trials on them. And pharmaceutical companies are the ones that do them. So don't always say that if a, if a treatment doesn't have, you know, the phase three double blind uh, clinical trials that it's no good. But look for what I call, what I coined, patient evidence-based medicine. Often this is called anecdotal. I don't think it is, but read whether people have had good results. One good sign is, for instance, with something like low-dose naltrexone, there are actually several Facebook groups dedicated to helping people to find low-dose naltrexone, to get their doctors to prescribe it. Or to find um, a doctor a who will sign. prescribe it. Excuse me? Or to find a doctor who will prescribe it. Yeah, well, the doctors who will prescribe it, absolutely. There are people who will help them. I'm, I'm one of them who has, who can help them find a doctor. Um, but there's, but there, the doctor's names are usually not posted on the internet, but there are people out there who help people to find a doctor who will, yes. And we, we should just mention on low dose naltrexone that um, this is an FDA-approved medicine, but yes. it was approved for some other application. It so was. This is just an application in the case of MS or whatever. Not only that, but this is a wonderful thing point to mention that, you know, I don't know if your listeners know that any doctor can prescribe a drug, any drug off-label. That means for, for, a, for a use other than what it was, uh, was FDA-approved for. And uh, in this case, but they're not, the pharmaceutical company cannot market it for diseases other than those which it was, for which it was FDA approved. But in this case, we're talking about naltrexone was, F, was approved by the FDA in 1984 for 
drug abuse and in 1994 for alcoholism and it was approved at 50 milligrams, 5-0, and doctors were using it at anywhere up to, I believe, two and 300 milligrams. And you would give it to a patient uh, with, you know, who was a drug addict or an alcoholic, and they would, it was supposed to dampen, it was supposed to block their craving for the substance and for alcohol or drugs. And so when Dr. Bahari, and we can tell this, uh, the, the origin of this, or, or if you'd rather just have people read about it in my book, he discovered that at very low doses, at 3 and 4.5 milligrams, it was good for diseases that had at their, at their base an immune system dysfunction, including autoimmune diseases, some cancers. So it's really, it's so non-toxic because it's, it's so much lower than what it was FDA approved for. Well, we'll talk about, I want to talk about the immune system after the break, but we're going to go to break, and we'll be right back with Julia Shopik talking about honest medicine. Has the universe been trying to get your attention? What will it take for you to start to listen? I'm Miriam Knight, and I interviewed 37 individuals from all walks of life for our book, What Wags the World, Tales of Conscious Awakening. In it, they describe the cosmic two-by-fours that changed their lives, and their answers may make you rethink your own ideas about the nature of reality. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or ask for it at your local bookstore. What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. And we are back with Julia Shopik, uh, the Honest Medicine Lady, and her website is honestmedicine.com. Julia, I did want to talk about the immune system, but before that, uh, I think it's important to... uh, Talk about the relationship with your doctor. I can imagine doctors do not like to be second-guessed. So what is a good way for an empowered patient to approach their doctor? Well, the first thing I like to tell, tell people, Miriam, is that they should understand where their doctor is coming from. I know I'm stepping back a bit, but I'll, I'll try to make this as brief as possible. But they were literally trained. Remember we mentioned trained and not educated? Mm-hmm. They were literally trained to believe that patients were going to, to just take their advice. You know, the doctor gives his, his pronouncement, let's use that word rather than advice, as to what the patient should do for a particular illness, you know, and the patient just says, yes, doctor. And so that has changed a bit. And some doctors are saying, well, I'm really open-minded now. So what they decide is patient, is patient empowerment is that the doctor gives two or three options about what the treatment should be. And the, together, patient and doctor choose one of the doctor's two or three options. Get the difference between what I'm talking about? Because <laughs> what I'm talking about is that if, and I would say really only if what your doctor is doing is just not working. You're getting worse and worse and worse. 
and you're feeling worse and worse, I'm talking about becoming what I call an empowered patient. I did not develop that, that phrase, but uh, did not coin that. But an empowered patient who will bring information to your doctor and say, doctor, together, uh, can we decide whether this treatment would be, uh, would be efficacious for me? And that's what I think you're talking about, right? Yeah. So. What is necessary is first understanding where the doctor is coming from. He has been educated or trained not to, not to be open. So when you go to your doctor with an idea for a new treatment, don't do. There, I'm going to give you a, one big don't. One don't is don't just say, doctor, I heard of something on the Internet. Those are fighting words to your doctor. <laughs> a red flag. You know, my dad, who was a doctor, as I told you in the beginning, he used to come home and say, somebody else just brought me an article from the Reader's Digest about, you know, about a treatment. Why do they think the Reader's Digest knows more than I do? You know? So today's I found this on the Internet is just very similar to I found this in the Reader's Digest. Don't do that. What you should do, yes, go on the Internet. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but don't say that to your doctor as your first line of attack. What you should really do is get all the information you can about a treatment. Don't just go there and say, I heard of this treatment and what do you think, let's do it. That's just not going to work. But what I advise my clients, I, I now do some coaching of how to, you know, helping patients to convince their doctors. Do all your research and find as many articles as you can, and then go through them and pick the ones about this treatment that are the most convincing. And in the case of low-dose naltrexone, I give the patients a wonderful interview with Dr. Bernard Bahari, who is the man who pioneered. He actually developed the lower doses of naltrexone, the way I told about, you know, for autoimmune diseases. And there's a wonderful interview with him that was published in Alternative Therapies magazine that looks very professional. Don't forget, your doctor will want you to give materials that look professional. So I give them that, and I coach them. Point out to your doctor that Dr. Bahari is Harvard-educated, that he is board-certified in two areas, uh, neurology and psychiatry, and point out that he went to some Harvard-associated schools, you know, and got his board certification with them. Point these things out. And then, and this is very, very important, doctors will say, well, there aren't any big trials done. Maybe true. But there are often, and with the case of every treatment in my book, the four treatments, there are definitely small studies that have been done and by prestigious institutions and published in very prestigious publications. Get them for your doctor. Um, for instance, if you have Crohn's disease and you want to try low-dose naltrexone, there are three studies that were done at Penn State all of which show that low-dose naltrexone is very, is very useful for Crohn's disease. And they were published. Oh, I said they were at, done at Penn State, which is a reputable institution. And they were published in, one of them was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. So take these studies to your doctor. The best is not to even take abstracts. Bring the entire study as it appeared in the journal. And uh, if there are no studies for 
kids about the treatment for your particular disease, bring a bunch of and well put together abstracts from PubMed. And uh, PubMed is the government-run website that houses all of these studies, big and small, and your doctor loves PubMed. And then put the information into a folder, make it look very professional. Remember I said to get a whole bunch of information? Don't bring a whole bunch to your doctor. Just bring some that you feel are the most convincing. And now that you've educated yourself, Make sure that there are publications that you can talk about with your doctor. And here's the biggest mistake patients make is when they bring information, they say, okay, here's the information, what do you think? No good. What you should do is bring the information, say something like the following, you know, I found information about this treatment that seems very, very promising for my particular uh, condition. And, doctor, I've put together some information, including studies, in some very prestigious publications, and I'd like you to take the time and read them, and then I'd like us to set up an appointment to get together and talk about them. This takes the pressure off the doctor for having to give an answer right away. Believe me, he or she will be grateful that you, you know, that he may not say yes eventually, but you're presenting it in a very professional manner. And usually what I found in my coaching is the doctors will say, yes, let's make an appointment to talk in two weeks or three weeks. Then you go back, you bring the same packet for yourself, and then you have a conversation. And I try to point out to people exactly how to present the material. But if you have found small studies by going on PubMed, all you need to do is go to Google and put in PubMed and, you know, in the search bar and you'll get taken right to the, uh, to the uh, website for PubMed, and you put in the term in the PubMed search bar, and you get lo loads of information comes up. This is the way you have to do your homework. And if you don't, I think you're going to be very disappointed because your doctor is not in the mindset to be ha happy to hear about a new treatment. So you have to do everything you can to make him or her be more open. So I don't know if I answered it totally, but, uh, you know, those are some hints. I think that was a great overview. Thank you. Before the break, we were talking about um, the, the question of uh, low-dose naltrexone and its effect on boosting the immune system. Now, there are a lot of things that can boost the immune system um, that are not necessarily pharmaceuticals. It's um, life conditions, removing the stress from your life, uh, having a support system, eating nutritional foods. So um, I, I think we'll get back to that after the break. In the meantime, um, please uh, go to Julia's website, get her book. It's called Honest Medicine by Julia Shopik. So the... Part of empowering a patient that I wanted to focus on was self-education. There are many different aspects to overcoming disease, and many of these are lifestyle aspects. Um, I remember interviewing, uh, what was her name, Kelly Turner, who wrote a book called Radical Remission, oh, looking yes. at the common factors 
in people who had survived stage four cancer, you know, after they've been told to go home and, you know, buy a burial plot. And of the nine, seven were emotional factors. They were not even medical factors, physical factors. So I can't stress enough the importance of self-empowerment through education, through um, uh, having a support system, through having a reason for living, through um, being optimistic that you can get well. Taking control of your health was number one factor in what she found. So being an empowered patient is the best thing that you can do to regain your health. So, well said. <laughs> so, where where would you go next, Julia, in terms of what you have learned? Well, I think where I would go next is to talk about the go back to what we were talking about in the beginning, which is following your gut. And um, what I would talk about is I would tell people that, you know, I hope that what I'm saying in my book, in Honest Medicine and here today with you, is not making you feel like, oh, the doctor never has a good answer. You know, forget it. Because in many cases, you know, the answer is quite simple. You have an infection, um, you know, either do an antibiotic, and, and often the antibiotic will just quell the infection, you know, but in, you should probably do some research and also take probiotics at the same time, mm-hmm. you know. But what I'm trying to say is sometimes there are simple solutions, and your doctor may know about it, but it's when the solutions, and I'm putting quotes around that, that the doctor recommends, the the drugs that the doctor recommends are just making you sicker and sicker. You're not getting better. I guess don't listen. If your doctor says you have three months to live and there's no other treatments out there, put at the end of his or her sentence, no other treatments out there that I know about. And if you're told in the beginning that you have three months or six months to live, I would start researching right away because your doctor basically is telling you that anything that he or she prescribes, like the chemotherapies, they're, they're only going to keep you alive for a few months. And then I would definitely start doing research and do the make, make the changes that Miriam was talking about, lifestyle changes and eat healthy and all of that. But follow your gut, but don't decide right away that the doctor never has a good answer. So that's probably where I would go next with it. I want to remind our listeners that uh, African uh, witch doctors were famous for putting a curse on people and saying you're going to die, and the people would go into the jungle and die because the, the power of that suggestion was so strong. Equally, the placebo effect is stronger than absolutely any single medicine out yeah. there. And, you know, that reminds me that when, I, when my husband first got sick, I had been writing columns for American Medical News, the AMA publication, about promotion for doctors. So I did have contacts there. So I said, I want to write a few columns you know, on doctor-patient relations, patient-doctor relations. They said, oh, fine, you know, because I was already writing columns for them. One of the columns that I wrote was on, should your doctor tell the truth? And, of course, by the truth I meant, you know, you have three months to live, right? Mm-hmm. And my answer was, no, the doctor should not tell people that. 
because, as you pointed out, they will go ahead and just people people often will die at if they're given three months, they will die at the three month mark. So that's the most harmful information a doctor can give, I think. So people may disagree with me. A lot of people do disagree with me. They say, oh, but I want the doctor to tell the truth. And I always say, but the doctor is not God. The doctor does not know that you have three months to live. And don't forget that the statist- that what he's saying is based on statistics. And statistics are the typical bell-shaped curve. Yeah. And there are long slopes on either side. And there was a, there is an article out there. It's by somebody, and I forget his name. I'm so sorry, um, but it's a patient who was given a dire prognosis, and he wrote an article called "The Medium." The medium is the message, or something like that. And basically, he talked about the bell curve, and when the doctor says you have three months to live, what it really means, you know. And it doesn't mean you have three months to live. And it's such a such a toxic message for doctors to give. It really is. Because no, it's untrue, basically. Yeah. So, what do you have? Have you learned of any new medicines that weren't in your book that yes. you should know about? Um, yes. And um, I, you know, I was wondering what I should do next, and I have decided that what I am going to do next, and this is very interesting to do another edition of my book of Honest Medicine. The reason for that is that there are uh, several, there are are new things to come out about these treatments that I wrote about. For instance, new studies to show that the ketogenic diet, which is used for pediatric epilepsy, can also be used. They're doing studies for it for Alzheimer's, for brain injury, for, uh, for ALS, and uh, for cancer, Dr. Thomas Seafried uh, did studies showing that uh, the ketogenic diet is very effective for glioblastomas, which are brain tumors, very serious brain tumors. So I decided that that book, you know, telling about uh, about other uses for the uh, treatments that I have already written about is my next book. But I am doing a bit of research, and there are other treatments out there, and I need to do the research first, you know, but one of them is called EECP. Um, Do you know about that one, Miriam? No. It's called Enhanced External Counterpulsation Therapy, and it's for what they call persistent angina or, you know, heart problems. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it, it helps the patient Grow and and again, I don't know as much about it as I do about the treatments I wrote about because I'm still researching about it. But it helps the patient grow more veins or arteries around the blocked arteries. Oh, is this a pulsation of light? Nope, it's pulsation. It's it's putting uh, cuffs on the patient's legs and literally uh, having the cuffs do a pulsation. Um, to cal- to correspond with with the breathing, and you know I don't want to get myself in trouble by going into too much detail, but if people want information about it, they can write to me at JulietHonestMedicine.com. There are some wonderful articles out there about this treatment and how it really it should be the treatment that's used. It's going to sound just like what I'm talking what I talked about about the others. According to everything I've read so far, it should be used. Remember Dr. Do No Harm, first do no harm? It should be used before you do stents, before you do open-heart surgery, not if somebody is in crisis. 
I don't want to encourage anybody, you know, who really is having a heart attack. They, they may need to have their arteries open. You know, I don't want to say, but if you're not in that critical situation, look up EECP. Another one that I'm learning about now is absolutely. just going to have to go to Julia's website or contact Julia directly because we've run out of time. Oh, no. I've had such fun. Oh, my goodness. We've been speaking with Julia Shopik about Honest Medicine, which is the title of her book, and her website, honestmedicine.com. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you so much, Miriam. I've had such fun. And please join us next week. Until then, visit our website, ncreview.com, and leave through our magazine. And do join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Be good to yourself, do good in the world, and let that light of yours shine.